Thank you for listening to the podcast of Palmetto Baptist Church. We pray that as you listen to the following message, that it will encourage you to continue to connect, grow, and serve in your relationship with God and with others. If you have your Bibles with you, turn in them to Jeremiah chapter 20. Book of Jeremiah chapter 20. Jeremiah chapter 20. How many of you were here last Sunday? Raise your hand. If you were here last Sunday, you remember that we were reintroduced to a fellow who is in Luke, the Gospel of Luke chapter 8. His name was Jairus. Jairus was a minister of a synagogue. The closest thing we would know to that would be a, a, a pastor, a pastor of a local church. Jairus was a minister, the leader in a synagogue where Jewish people would come to worship. He was not a Christian and was not a believer in Jesus as Savior and Lord. In fact, he wasn't really big on Jesus or any other miracle worker of his time. But Jairus had a crisis to come up in his family. His daughter, who was his only child, his daughter became very, very sick, terminally sick. And Jairus and his wife took their daughter to various doctors to try to get some help. None of the doctors could help. And they were desperate, as any parent would be. And so, against all of the judgment he'd ever had in his life, Jairus decided as a last resort to start consulting miracle workers to try to find some sort of help for his daughter. And so, one of the miracle workers that he sought help from was Jesus. And he found out where Jesus was, the town that Jesus was in, and he went there and he found a big crowd pressing up against Jesus. He made his way through the crowd and he came up to Jesus and he says, Jesus, you must help me. My daughter is at the point of death. You have to come and help me. And Jesus said, sure, let's go. Well, a few things uh, happened to cause Jesus' trip to Jairus' house to be delayed. And because of the delays, Jairus' daughter died. And a family member of Jairus comes up to meet Jairus and Jesus on their way to Jairus' house. And he says, look, uh, Jairus, she's gone. Don't bother the master anymore. And Jairus, I'm sure, becomes becomes really upset. And Jesus touches him and says, Jairus, don't be upset. Just believe. She will live. And uh, the short part of the story is they go to Jairus' house and they find the daughter already dead. And Jesus raises her to life. And at the end of that dramatic monologue last Sunday, I posed the question, would Jairus have believed in Jesus, have given his life to Jesus, had Jesus not healed his daughter, would he have believed in Jesus? And the way I ended the monologue was saying, Jairus saying, I don't know if I would have or not. All I know is, all I know that I can say right now is, right now, I do believe in him. The fact of the matter, if you look at Luke chapter 8, Luke doesn't tell us whether Jairus and his family end up believing in Jesus, even though Jesus healed his daughter. We assume 
that because Jesus healed Jairus' daughter, that Jairus and his family put their trust in Jesus, believed in Jesus, and were saved by Jesus. But Luke actually doesn't tell us that. So we don't know if he believed in Jesus, even though his daughter was healed, let alone could we possibly know whether he would have believed in Jesus had Jesus not healed his daughter. It brings up the question, why is it that we put our trust in in the Lord? Why do we believe in the Lord? And would we believe in the Lord if he never did anything noticeable or visible for us? It was the same question that Satan asked God one day in the first chapter of the book of Job. God says to Satan, what have you been doing? He says, I've been going up and down all over the earth. And God says, well, did you notice my servant Job? There's nobody like him. And Satan says, yeah, but would Job serve you for nothing? You keep blessing him. No wonder he serves you. He serves you and you bless him. But would he serve you for nothing? It's a pretty good question, I think. Would we serve God if we never got anything out of our belief in him? Uh, Jairus' daughter was healed. Would he have believed had she not gotten healed? I want us to go to Jeremiah chapter 20. The book of Jeremiah was written by a prophet named Jeremiah. Jeremiah preached for almost 50 years in the southern kingdom of Judah, and nobody ever listened to him. I'm talking about when he would preach and they would sing Just As I Am or whatever the invitation song was, nobody ever came forward, nobody ever joined the church. In fact, most people would not even show up to hear him preach. Those who did would get up and leave early before he got through. Nobody listened to him for almost 50 years. And when we get to Jeremiah chapter 20, verse 7, he's ready to quit. Jeremiah is ready to quit. Chapter 20 finds him at a time of deep soul searching over whether he even wanted to continue serving God or not. Especially considering the fact that nobody was listening. Jeremiah chapter 20, beginning with verse 7. Oddly enough, verse 7 begins with a complaint against God. An accusation. You deceived me, Lord, and I was deceived. You overpowered me and prevailed. I'm ridiculed all day long. Everyone mocks me. Whenever I speak, I cry out, proclaiming violence and destruction. So the word of the Lord has brought me insult and reproach all day long. But if I say, I will not mention his word or speak any more in his name. His word is in my heart like a fire, a fire shut up in my bones. I'm weary of holding it in. Indeed, I cannot. I hear many whispering terror on every side. Denounce him. Let's denounce him. All my friends are waiting for me to slip, saying, perhaps he will be deceived. Then we will prevail over him and take our revenge on him. But the Lord is with me like a mighty warrior. So my persecutors will stumble and not prevail. They will fail and be thoroughly disgraced. Their dishonor will never be forgotten. Lord Almighty, you who examine the righteous and probe the heart and mind, let me see your vengeance on them, for to you I have committed my cause. Sing to the Lord, give praise to the Lord. He rescues the life of the needy 
from the hands of the wicked. When Jeremiah is ministering, he's ministering to the southern kingdom of Judah. When Israel starts off as a nation, there's one united kingdom. And that, can, that kingdom continues under the reign of Saul, and then David, and then Solomon. But when Solomon's son, Rehoboam, starts to reign, he makes some decisions that split up the kingdom into the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. By the time we get to Jeremiah's ministry, which is in the late 600s, early 500s, the northern kingdom of Israel is gone. Assyria has invaded the northern kingdom of Israel and it is gone forever. And all that is left is the southern kingdom of Judah. And the superpower of that day was Babylon under the leadership of King Nebuchadnezzar, who was a military king. And Nebuchadnezzar had sent an army to Jerusalem, the capital of Judah, and surrounded Jerusalem. And he surrounded Jerusalem for two years and would not let any food go into Jerusalem. He basically starved the people out. This is the time that Jeremiah is preaching. It's a very difficult time. And the message that Jeremiah has for the people is a hard message It is a message of warnings and a message of surrender. In fact, at one point, he urged them to surrender to the Babylonians, a message that nobody wanted to hear. And as a result of his preaching, uh, we learn from his his writing that the people denounced him. Chapter 20, verses 1 and 2 says, When the priest Pashur, son of Emmer, The official in charge of the temple of the Lord heard Jeremiah prophesying these things. He had Jeremiah the prophet beaten and put in the stocks at the upper gate of Benjamin at the Lord's temple. So Jeremiah is preaching. He's delivering God's message. And the leader of the temple in Jerusalem doesn't like what Jeremiah is preaching, has him arrested, has him beaten, and then thrown into a prison that is part of the temple facility. The people, including the religious leaders, denounced Jeremiah. But not only that, Jeremiah tells us that his friends conspired against him. Chapter 20, verse 10. I heard many whispering, terror on every side, denounce him, let's denounce him. All my friends are waiting for me to slip. How would you like to have friends like that? All my friends are waiting for me to slip saying, perhaps he will be deceived and then we will prevail over him and take our revenge on him. So the people denounced him. The religious leaders denounced him and betrayed him. His own friends conspired against him. But what makes it even worse is that Jeremiah's own family turned against him, his family. Jeremiah chapter 12, verse 6 says this. God is talking to Jeremiah. And here's what God says to Jeremiah in chapter 12, verse 6. Your relatives, the members of your own family, even they have betrayed you. They have raised a loud cry against you. Do not trust them, though they speak well of you. It's no wonder that the New Testament writers look back on Jeremiah and saw him as a foreshadowed person of Jesus. Jeremiah was arrested in Jerusalem near the temple. Jesus was arrested in Jerusalem near the temple. Uh, Jeremiah was a weeping prophet. Jesus 
wept, smallest verse in the Bible, at uh, Lazarus' tomb in, Luke, in uh, John chapter 11. Uh, Jeremiah was beaten near the temple. Jesus was beaten near the temple. Uh, Jeremiah was rejected by those he came to minister to. Jesus was rejected by those he came to minister to. Jeremiah was a, uh, a precursor, if you will, to Jesus. And so here in chapter 20, Jeremiah feels caught in the middle. He's squeezed between a God who has insisted that he preach this very difficult word of warning. And then on the other side, there are these people who refuse to believe him. Somebody said it this way, that Jeremiah is stuck between an insistent God and a resistant people. And so Jeremiah is ready to throw in the towel. He's ready to quit. He's had it up to here. He's done. He's ready for somebody to stick a fork in him. He wants out of the picture. He's ready to resign, retire, quit, turn in his notice, get out of town. And, and he was ready to throw in the towel, but when, the, when he wanted to do so, he could not do it. Did you hear me? I didn't say he would not. He could not do it because he says that God's word in his heart was like a fire that was shut up in his bones. He could not stop it. He could not quench it. He could not contain it. The only thing he could do is keep preaching it, even though he knew people weren't going to listen. Jeremiah wanted to quit, but he wouldn't quit because God put a fire in his bones. Have you ever wanted to quit before? There have been something in your life you're really passionate about, but it seemed like nobody else was with you on it. And, and you just got tired and irritated and frustrated and depressed and fatigued. And finally, you decided, I am out of here. I'm done. I quit. And yet you didn't quit. You're here. You stuck with the program. You stuck with the plan. You stuck with what you felt God was calling you to do. Why did you do that? Why is it that there are times when we feel like giving up, but we don't give up? What is it that keeps us going? Well, the scripture reveals there are a number of things that could keep us going. Uh, there are three that I want to mention to you today. This is not an exhaustive list by any means. But when you feel like quitting, why would you want to continue on? Why persevere? One reason why we can continue on in the face of great hardship is this. We have nowhere else to turn. Now that may seem like a pitiful reason to continue trusting God or to continue persevering in the faith because I don't have any other place to turn. I mean, that's like, hey, I, I, I'm going to try everything else that I can but if that doesn't work, I can always come back to God. I don't have anywhere else to turn. It sounds like a pitiful reason to follow God, except for it's a pretty good reason to follow God. Because truly, you and I have nowhere else to turn. Hey, listen, if you, if you uh, decide to give up on Jesus, who are you going to go to? Uh, you're going to go to Muhammad? I don't think so. Are you going to go to some Hindu uh, guru? I don't think they got anything worthwhile to, to teach you. Uh, wh where are we going to go? And if we decide to give up on God and turn atheist or agnostic, we have then nowhere to turn to. We literally have nowhere else to go but to God. Who else offers us heaven when we die? Who else 
came to live a perfect life and was willing to die on a cross. Who else did that? Who else was raised from the dead to give us life and ensure us that we too can live beyond the grave? Who else? Nobody else. In uh, John chapter 6, Jesus turns to his disciples after a lot of them. uh, You know, you had the 12 disciples who were his inner group, inner circle. But beyond that, there were thousands of people following him. And there was a time in John chapter 6 where most of those people were walking away. They were leaving Jesus by the hundreds. And Jesus turned to his inner circle and he says, Are you going to leave me also? And Peter... The guy with the foot-shaped mouth of all people stands up and he says, Lord, to whom shall we go? In other words, we don't have anywhere else to go. We have no one else to turn to. He says, you alone have the words of eternal life. We believe and are sure that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. We can persevere because there is nowhere else to turn. Second, we can persevere in the face of struggles and hardship, because you and I have an inner compulsion that seeks to be satisfied. You and I have an inner compulsion that seeks to be satisfied. Listen to what Jeremiah says. He says, he says if I say I'm not going to mention his name anymore, mention God's name anymore, he said his word in me is like a fire, a fire shut up in my bones. There was something in Jeremiah. There was an inner compulsion. He called it a fire in his bones that that caused him to not be able to quit. Not just to not be willing to quit, but not to be able to quit. There's this inner compulsion. One of my favorite books in the Bible is the book of Ecclesiastes in the Old Testament. Ecclesiastes was written by a man who I believe was in a midlife crisis. And he is unhappy and he's looking for happiness. And the the book is 12 chapters long. During the first 11 chapters, he looks every conceivable place to find happiness. And he doesn't find it. It's an unsuccessful journey. And he's he's chronicling, he's journaling this whole uh, pursuit of happiness. At the very end, he finally comes to the conclusion that that happiness can only be found if it is found in a relationship with God. He comes to that conclusion almost with resignation. If you read chapter 12 of Ecclesiastes. But in chapter 3, as he's journaling, he, he, he... he notices that life is, is full of good times and bad. It is this complicated series of diverse events and unpredictable events. And he puts this in the form of a poem. He says, he says there's a time to every purpose and a season for every activity under heaven. A time to be born, a time to die, a time to mourn, a time to laugh. A time to gather stones, a time to refrain from gathering stones. In other words, he's saying life has ups and downs, back and forth. But at the conclusion of that poem, he makes a statement. And that statement is this. In verse 11 of chapter 3, he says, But God has placed eternity into the heart of human beings. What a great statement. God has placed eternity into the hearts 
of human beings. What that means is that God has placed in every person, every person in this building, God has placed within you a a bit of eternity that causes you to want eternity. It causes you to want something that is eternal, that is beyond what is here that we see and that we can feel and that we can touch. In other words, what God has put in your heart is a hole that is God-shaped. And we can try to fill it with all kinds of things. Money, success, popularity, education, wisdom, drugs, alcohol, you name it. We can try to fill it with any other thing. But it will only be filled satisfactory with a, an ongoing relationship with God. There is something in us, an inner compulsion, that seeks constantly to be satisfied. And it can only be satisfied if we persevere in an ongoing relationship with God. To give up on that is to give up on fulfillment and meaning and happiness in life. I'm not saying that if we continue, persevere in our relationship with God, that everything's going to be happy. You know better than that. You and I both know better than that. But I will tell you that our best opportunity at happiness and fulfillment comes not at giving up on that relationship, but persevering in that relationship. C.S. Lewis, one of my favorite writers, put it this way. He said, quote, I pray because I can't help myself. I pray because I'm helpless. I pray, he said, because the need flows out of me all of the time, waking and sleeping. It doesn't change God. It changes me. We can persevere, number one, because we have nowhere else to turn, but we can also persevere because there is an inner compulsion God placed within us that seeks constantly to be satisfied and can only be satisfied in persevering in a relationship with God. Number three, we can persevere in the face of hardship because we have a God who is faithful even when other people are not. What Jeremiah found out throughout almost 50 years of doing ministry is this. When it came down to it, the religious leaders disappointed him. The political leaders disappointed him. His best friends turned on him. And his family bitterly disappointed him. The only person Jeremiah found to be faithful, come what may, was God himself. Listen, The best people you know will at some point, if you stay close enough to them, will at some point disappoint you. There isn't a human being alive today who will not disappoint you or who does not have the capacity for disappointment. They will, you will, I will, we will. So we can't put our trust in people. Not people that we know here, even family members although for the most part they'll be with us. But what, what, what we will find is the same thing that Jeremiah found, and that is this. At the end of the day, the one person who will always be faithful is the Lord himself. He is always there even when it doesn't feel like he's there. He will never disown us nor forsake us even when we can't sense his presence with us. He never, ever leaves us. In fact, it's impossible to get where he's not 
Here's what Jeremiah found. Beginning with verse 11, after he's talked about the fact that the religious leaders denounced him, the people didn't listen to him, his family disowned him, and his friends betrayed him. Here's what he said, verse 11. But the Lord is with me like a mighty warrior, so my persecutors will stumble and they will not prevail. Verse 13, so sing to the Lord, give praise to the Lord. He rescues the life of the needy from the hands of of the wicked. We can persevere because we have a God who's faithful even when people are not. Some of you remember the name Randy Posh. He was an American professor of computer science. He died on July the 25th, 2008 of pancreatic cancer. He was a professor at the Carnegie Mellon University in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. He received his diagnosis, his diagnosis uh, on August, in August 2007, and so uh, he was told he had somewhere between three and six months to live. He ended up living almost uh, a year, uh, or maybe a little over a year, but he put together a lecture for his students, and he entitled it The Last Lecture. Some of you have seen or heard this lecture. In one part of this lecture, Randy Posh says this. He's talking about brick walls that keep us from persevering. He says this, the brick walls are there for a reason. The brick walls are not there to keep us out. The brick walls are there to give us a chance to show how badly we want something. Because the brick walls are there to stop the people who don't want it badly enough. They're there to stop the other people. One of my favorite poets is the African-American poet Maya Angelou, who died just a few days ago. Her most popular work is I Know Why the Caged Bird Sings. Great, great, great book and poem. But on one occasion, she said this. Maya Angelou said, quote, You may encounter many defeats, but you must not be defeated In fact, it may be necessary to encounter the defeat so you can know who you are, what you can rise from, and how you can still come out of it. Jeremiah. Ladies and gentlemen, hear this. Jeremiah had every reason to quit. I would have quit. He preached for almost 50 years and nobody ever did what he asked them to do. Nobody ever responded in the invitation, ever. He had every reason to throw in the towel, but he couldn't do it. He persevered. And if Jeremiah can persevere, so can you. I don't know. I know that some of you are going through some real difficult times and some of you are going through some difficult times I know nothing about because it's very private for you. But I will tell you this, whatever your crisis is, whatever the struggle is that at different points in your life is causing you to really think, I'm giving up. Jeremiah is saying to you and saying to me and saying to us, you can never 
ever, ever give up. God has put a fire in your bones. You cannot quench it. You cannot kill it. You cannot move it. You cannot contain it. It is there to share. Don't quit. Let's pray. Our Father, we're thankful for the testimony of Jeremiah. A man who had every reason to quit, but didn't quit. And he didn't quit because you wouldn't let him. Lord, we may never, I certainly hope we never, go through what Jeremiah did. No observable success whatsoever in his ministry. Unlike Jairus, who got his daughter back, Jeremiah never got anything that he wanted. Later, when Nebuchadnezzar overtook Jerusalem and carried people 700 miles into Babylonian captivity, he left Jeremiah behind, and Jeremiah was later forced to go to Egypt, and that's the last we hear of him. We don't even know what happened to him. He didn't get to go out on his own terms. But he never quit. May we never quit. In Jesus' name, amen.